Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the World Teacher Podcast. Really special guest today. It's truly an honor to have had the chance to speak with him. His name is Dr. Jim Garrison. He's the founder, president, and chief academic officer of Ubiquity University, a truly alternative, indeed transformative global online university that really has the potential to change people's lives and the world for the better. Dr. Garrison is also the main convener of Humanity Rising, which is how I discovered him, and only very recently. Humanity Rising is a global solution summit. It consists of a daily series of online events with an incredibly diverse range of speakers who have come together with a shared purpose, to create an international coalition strong enough to transform conversations that matter into actions that make a difference. Humanity Rising is honestly amazing. He has really, really fascinating people on every day. Definitely check it out. I would truly be baffled if anyone who listens to this conversation doesn't very quickly check out both Ubiquity University and Humanity Rising. This is me and Dr. Jim Garrison talking about the future of education and indeed humanity. Dr. Jim Garrison, you are a fascinating person. I've only encountered you very recently due to Humanity Rising, which I think is absolutely wonderful, and I really feel privileged and amazed to be part of it, truly. Uh, there's a lot of things I want to ask you about. Humanity Rising, Ubiquity, Ubiquity University, in particular, the future of Earth. But I, I thought it would be really interesting to start with you. Uh, Mr. Garrison, who are you? And please tell us your story. <laughs> who am i well that is the uh, the great question that philosophers and mystics from the beginning of time have tried to uh contemplate uh uh so i'm not sure i can give you a complete answer but uh uh basically in a nutshell i was actually born in china mm. uh, along the tibetan border uh, my parents were missionaries, uh, and uh, uh, they were on their way to Tibet after the Second World War, and um, uh, the border was closed. So I was uh, born uh, in a little town called Hui Li uh, in western Sichuan province, uh, and then uh, we left China uh, during the midst of the communist revolution and the invasion of Tibet was very turbulent, very violent, uh, but we made it out uh, safe and sound and then went to Taiwan uh, uh, for the next uh, 15 years. Uh, so I was born and raised in Asia, uh, in China and Taiwan. Can I ask where in China, where, sorry, where in Taiwan? In, uh, we were in different little towns in the center of the island, uh, uh, Hui Li, was, uh, uh, or, or Shiloh rather, was one of the uh, towns that we lived in. But I went to school in Taichung, uh, oh, the cool. big city in the middle, in the middle of the island at a missionary school called Morrison Academy that can I've been there. operate to the present day. 
Yeah, I, I've done uh, professional development training at Morrison. It's a wonderful school, actually. I lived in Taiwan for five years. Oh, in, uh, really? In sort of like the Silicon Valley of Taiwan, a, a city called Shinju. Yeah. Where 10% of the world's microchips are produced. Yeah. So Taiwan is a wonderful country. Yeah. And I think it's awesome. You're very lucky to have been able to grow up there. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I grew up uh, bilingual in, in uh, Chinese and English and loved the Chinese people. Um, then uh, came to the United States and and uh, uh, for high school and then university. And the issue of that time was the Vietnam War because mm. uh, I'm a child of the, of the 60s. I'm a baby boomer. And because I'd been in Asia, there was no way I was going to go to Vietnam with the U.S. Army and kill people. So I mm. refused the draft and went through a whole uh, situation with the government uh, and uh, but emerged again. Uh, I I refused any cooperation, and then they lost me in the files. Lucky. And so I completed my uh, uh, college, and then went off to uh, Harvard uh, for graduate work uh, at the MA level, uh, and then to Cambridge uh, for a PhD in philosophical theology. Uh, and that's actually very important in terms of who I am. Um, my uh, PhD dissertation was on the question of why it is after several billion years of evolutionary life that our species in our generation uh, has brought the entire life process to the brink of extinction. Hmm. And that's a major question, why human beings are so cruel to each other and so cruel to the environment to such an extent that the only way we're able to live with each other is in the context of mutually assured destruction. It's very important for everybody watching this podcast to take in that the United States, Britain, France, Russia, China, Pakistan, Israel, have nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert, capable of destroying all planetary life. And under this umbrella, we conduct what we call normal business. And as if destroying the world through nuclear weapons isn't enough, we're now destroying the world through runaway climate change. There's something very wrong with human beings. And understanding that at a time when the instrumentality of power is so sophisticated, we can actually destroy the world, which seems to be our intent. So that, when I wrote that dissertation, uh, Gareth, I, I just, it changed my life. And ever since then, uh, 24-7, 365, I've been working with every ounce of my creative intelligence and energy to be part of those forces of goodness in the world that in some way are going to prevail over our darker impulses, which are spinning out of control, and save humanity from itself so that we can actually take advantage of the opportunities that are being afforded to us by our mother, which is planet Earth, 
to create a global civilization based on abundance, based on health, based on resilience, uh, and based most fundamentally on alignment with natural systems uh, and processes. So um, uh, that in a nutshell has been uh, my life and, you know, working with the dissertation, I had the chance to uh, uh, travel, you know, all over, particularly to what was then the Soviet Union. Whenever you would talk about why we were totally prepared to kill ourselves uh, multiple times over, people said, well, of course, you have to have nuclear weapons because of the Russians. You know, and the Israelis say it, of course, we have to have nuclear weapons because of the Iranians. And the Chinese say, well, of course, we have to have nuclear weapons because of the Americans and the Russians. And of course, the, uh, the French and the Germans, uh, the British say, of course, we have to have nuclear weapons against the Russians. Everybody has an enemy that is so polarized in their mind, they're willing to commit mutual suicide. We all need to take this in because that's our ordinary reality now. And so how we come together has been the mission of my life. And I've had unbelievable series of adventures uh, with Mr. Gorbachev, with whom I worked for 10 years, launching Ubiquity University, and then last year launching uh, Humanity Rising, which is now broadcasting worldwide every day to thousands, tens of thousands of people in over 130 countries. It's really an amazing journey, but it's all I about- I ask you a lot about that. Could I ask you first though about Gorbachev? That's not something I can just glance over. You worked with Mikhail Gorbachev for 10 years and you founded an institute with him. Can you please tell me more about that? <laughs> well, that was, a, that was a trip, man. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, here I was, a young uh, American in my late 20s uh, uh, writing uh, a thesis. I started to go to the Soviet Union uh, for the reasons I indicated. And um, while most of my friends were interested in people-to-people -people exchanges, because I'd studied history, and I'm, in particular, I was interested in the history of totalitarian systems, so I studied a lot about the Bolsheviks and the Nazis and the Chinese communists and, you know, this, this dialectic between democracy and authoritarianism, um, uh, I was fascinated. And I thought, here I am in the Soviet Union. I'm going to get to know the, the folks in the Central Committee and the, and the Politburo. So I started to work with them. And I wow. used to hung out at all kinds. I mean, it was unbelievable drinking lots of vodka and eating caviar <laughs> and having a wonderful time. And, and we developed what was called hot tub diplomacy because I was working for part of that time with, for the Esalen Institute in California. And they have hot tubs. Wow. And we would bring these high-level Soviets to California, to Esalen Institute, the mother load of the yeah. human potential movement, where everybody would take hot, go into the hot tubs. It was uh, both sexes and everybody was naked. Like in Japan. And when you take these Russians, buttoned up Bolsheviks <laughs> to hot tubs in Esalen, they went through a transformational experience uh, Gareth, that the like of which they never had before, and we couldn't get them out of the hot tubs, and the the, the uh, it was actually coined hot tub diplomacy. But anyway, 
over time, starting in 1982 uh, till 1989, um, uh, I ended up meeting Boris Yeltsin and organized his first trip to uh, the United States during which he had his epiphany experience about communism. I met uh, uh, Edward Shevardnadze, uh, the foreign minister. Uh, then in, in, in 1990, uh, there was the, um, uh, all the turbulence between Yeltsin and Gorbachev. And then in 1991, in June of 1991, uh, they, Gorbachev, the coup attempt and all of that. And then finally, Gorbachev uh, resigned in December of uh, 1991. And I was the last foreigner to be received by Gorbachev in the Kremlin before he resigned. Wow. And I was standing, wow. literally, I was standing by Edward Shevardnadze, the, the, the uh, foreign minister, uh, when he closed the doors of the Soviet foreign ministry when the Soviet Union had collapsed. Literally, I was standing wow. right beside him. That's amazing. And uh, so I is one of the most extraordinary, I would say, privileges of my life to be intimate, up close and personal to the collapse of one of the most totalitarian systems in the history, certainly of the modern world. And, um, and then uh, in our last meeting, Gorbachev asked me to to bring uh, meat to Moscow. So I organized this great big airlift of these huge airplanes, these C-52s, uh, 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 C, C I think, the biggest planes of the, uh, the US Air Force and the, and the Antonov uh, 124s, the biggest airplanes. We had what we called the Russian winter campaign. We brought thousands and thousands of tons of humanitarian relief because the hospitals had collapsed and people were hungry. And uh, out of that, uh, uh, Gorbachev and I and others uh, began to get very well acquainted with each other. And, uh, and then that led to Gorbachev and I coming to an agreement um, uh, that he would be the convening chairman of the Gorbachev Foundation uh, USA. And then we set up the State of the World Forum um, uh, starting uh, in uh, 1995, after working together for several years. And what we did there was really extraordinary and was actually the precursor to Humanity Rising. Because we, our tagline was uh, transforming conversations that matter into actions that make a difference. And we convened multidisciplinary leadership groups heads of state, military generals, CEOs, but also grassroots organizers, uh, people that were working with the homeless, uh, people from the NGO community, scientists, uh, all kinds of people, uh, because the more diversity you have, the more creativity you have. And uh, we convened them all over the world. We met in Beijing and New Delhi. We had a relationship in, in uh, China with a guy named Ma Hong, who at the time was the head of the uh, Communist Party uh, Central Committee uh, Committee on Science and Technology. In India, we met in, in New Delhi with the Rajiv Gandhi uh, Foundation. <clears throat> and um, South Africa with Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela. I mean, it was amazing. 
That's traveling with Gorbachev was like traveling with the Beatles. Better. It was it was an extraordinary wow. experience. And then 9-11 wow. happened. And then when 9-11 happened, everything collapsed. Hmm. Because George Bush and the Americans, you know, uh, decided that uh, it was time for the war on terror. And once the war on terror got underway, I knew it was over. Uh, so I actually flew to Moscow. Uh, Gorbachev and I uh, had lunch and we declared victory. Uh, and, um, um, and then I came back and out of the next phase began to emerge a whole new uh, mission. And that was to found a global learning institution uh, we called uh, Ubiquity University, uh, which is uh, seeking to reinvent learning as we know it uh, in the 21st century. And then out of ubiquity came humanity rising. Uh, but it's all framed within an awareness that we're living at the end of time, that at any moment, some crazy somebody can launch missiles that are already on hair trigger alert uh, and initiate a chain reaction that could destroy the world as we know it. I mean, you're watching what Putin and the Russians are doing and the Americans are doing around Ukraine now. That is a perfect example of how a perfect storm as the NATO alliance has pushed itself all the way to the borders of Russia, which by the way, is a violation of the agreement that Mr. Gorbachev had with George Bush senior when he in 1989 let Eastern Europe go the agreement was that if the Soviets would let Eastern Europe go, that the Americans would not push eastward with NATO. And the Americans and NATO have broken that promise. And it's very important to just to take a moment here because Ukraine is going to get worse before it gets better. And it's, so it's a, a very topical uh, point right now. Everybody's talking about uh, Putin being kind of the bad guy and the aggressor in the Ukraine. That's not true. The aggressor is the United States of America and the NATO alliance. Because every country, particularly these great powers like Russia, like China, like the United States, have buffer zones. And how many times has the West invaded Russia? Russia has never in its entire history invaded um, Europe. But Europe with, you know, think of Napoleon, think of the Nazis, have gone in and wiped out uh, the Western parts of Russia. So, um, you know, first uh, the Americans uh, brought uh, Poland, Bulgaria, Hungary into the NATO alliance. And the Russian says, you, you can't do that. And now they're pushing right up against the Russian. So Putin, rightfully, in my judgment, took Crimea. Crimea, Sevastopol, um, for centuries, has been the Black Sea port of the Russian Navy. Can you imagine NATO having the, the U.S. 6th Fleet in Sevastopol uh, and on the Black Sea? It's like if, 
if if the if the Soviets or another country came up and and took Mexico and then put weapons right on the southern border of Texas, the United States, look what the United States did uh, in 1962 when the Soviet Union and Castro in Cuba, in complete accordance with international standards, started to put missiles in Cuba. That's 90 miles off the U.S. coast. The United States almost went to nuclear war over that. So I'm taking a moment here to go into some of the history because um, what's happening in the Ukraine is no joke and is the result of U.S. aggression. And we need to understand that. So when you hear the news about Putin being a bad guy and, and all of this, um, he's an authoritarian leader, no doubt about it. But what's happening in the Ukraine is, is not the result of Russian aggression. Uh, it's, it's the aggression coming from the West as it's come uh, numerous times before. And the Russians are in a defensive position as they've been numerous times before. But Putin has made it clear no further. And he's willing to risk war. And um, he's got a lot of nuclear weapons. And so does the United States. So the precariousness of the world situation cannot be overstated at this moment. And in fact, the bulletin of the atomic scientists that normally has the clock three minutes, two minutes to midnight is now within about 30 seconds to midnight. That's how dangerous the world situation is. And why all of us, uh, and thank you for your podcast, you know, all of us have got to get the word out and we got to redouble our efforts to bring light into a darkening world. Can I ask how concerned are you? Um, are you more or less concerned now that Biden is in power? Many people on the left, like the actual left, were quite concerned about Biden given his history of somewhat aggressive, one could call it foreign policy moves. On the other hand, he is also seeming to lead the world with respect to climate change. He has a, a wonderful uh, uh, issuance of a, a new policy shift today where he's saying he's going to reduce carbon emissions by 50% by 2030, which sounds wonderful. What is your take on Biden? And I ask you this in particular because you've written about America as an empire with the hope that it might become a transcendental empire. Well, I would say... Joe Biden, I think, is an appropriate president in the aftermath of Donald Trump, who was a sociopath, if not a sure. psychopath, and a monstrosity uh, at every level that sought to destroy the pillars of democracy in one of the great democracies and almost succeeded. And uh, the real tribute is to the American people and the way they, they stood up, voted in overwhelming numbers uh, in November of, of last year and brought in, in Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden is 78 years old. Uh, he was uh, sculpted uh, by the Cold War. Uh, I think he has very outdated notions about Russia. Um, if I was Joe Biden, and this gives you an idea of how distorted the world situation is. 
it's very important to remember that when Putin came in in uh, 2000, he's been in power for 21 years. When he came in in, in 2000, the Berlin Mall had fallen. Eastern Europe was liberated. There was no more Cold War. The Soviet Union had fallen apart. So you know what Putin said? He said, we want Russia to join NATO. We want Russia to join the European Union. There's no more reason for us to be apart. That was the obvious move to make. The U.S. should have embraced that. But instead, George W. Bush embraced the Wolfowitz Doctrine that was saying, at this moment, it's time for the U.S. to assert global supremacy and really punish those Russians. Forgetting it wasn't Russia, it was communism that made Russia the enemy. And uh, so they began to, they said, no, you can't join NATO and you can't join the EU. And that's when they started to push NATO and the EU um, to the east, but keeping Russia out. Putin tried for seven years to get them to change their mind. And, um, and now, and then in 2007, he made a very famous speech in, in Munich where he said, enough, enough. It was at a meeting of the G20. We're not going to just keep being pushed around anymore, supplicating, you know, the United States of America, who is making it clear they don't want to play. They want to dominate. Well, you're not going to dominate us. And that's when Putin then went into another modality that was more defensive, more aggressive. And then when the U.S. came into to the Ukraine, that's when Putin uh, is now with his back against the wall, uh, could do something very dangerous. Joe Biden should sit down with Putin and say, you know what? You actually were asking the right question. And as president of the United States, I'm going to say yes. Russia should join NATO. Gareth, just think of how the world would change if Russia was invited into NATO, was invited into the EU, just think, you would almost have peace on earth. It would be, I mean, just think, everyone think that thought. But because one of the parties refused to do the obvious, we may go to nuclear war. And you've got and Alexei Navalny, who's, you know, dying in prison. And you've got uh, uh, the Russians, you know, and, you know, hacking and whether it's Brexit or the U.S. elections and all this stupidity that's going on purely because our political leaders didn't do the obvious. And that's a shame. That's Awful. actually a tragedy. It seems like they're acting from very self-interested totally. places. Totally. And we I think we absolutely must, must, must understand what's going on in the world and transcend these bridgeable divides. We need new thinking, we need new ways of approaching problems, and we need to be very serious about having a much bigger vision about how to help each other come together and build a better world. Humanity rising is all about this. I'm absolutely in love with it. It's like watching the best TV show ever. You get to take part in it, and then I often have to go to a meeting or something like that, but it's still on the internet later. 
please tell us about Humanity Rising and how it fits in the context of your life and our discussion so far, because I think it's really relevant. Well, it's uh, another synchronicity of fate and circumstances. You know, uh, last March, like everybody else, we were kind of shell-shocked that the pandemic was really a pandemic, you know, because we'd gotten used to SARS and uh, the Ebola, this and that, and they they appeared in the news for a couple of days and then kind of disappeared. And I thought that was going to happen with COVID. I didn't pay any attention. Me too. And uh, then all of a sudden, within a couple of weeks, it had spread all over the world. We were in lockdown, told to be uh, engaging in, in physical distancing, and the economies had been shut down, and the world had stopped. And I was actually caught in Amsterdam. I was on my way to Sri Lanka, actually, to sign a big agreement with the Ministry of Education um, uh, and never made it. And I ended up in uh, Amsterdam for most of uh, uh, 2020. And so by March, uh, April, I thought, whoa, this is like, this is, this is nuts. And then I put it to the team. I said, hey, guys, every crisis is an opportunity. How do we track what's the opportunity vector here? We started to think about it, and then someone made the suggestion, uh, a woman actually that I knew in, uh, in Amsterdam, she said, Jim, you need to recreate what you did with Gorbachev. You need to recreate the state of the world forum, except instead of bringing everybody together to San Francisco or New York or Beijing or wherever, do it online. And I went, whoa. And I'm telling you, it turned into a tsunami. I sent out emails, hey, that, so basically what we did is we, we, we said we're going to, we announced that, that on May 22nd, every day for the duration of the pandemic, we were going to convene a global commons, two hours a day on Zoom for free for anybody in the world to come on Zoom and start, you know, sharing their experiences, their fears, their anxieties, their visions, uh, their solutions, anything that was coming up for them as a result of the pandemic. And I'm telling you, uh, Gareth, it was, a, it was a tsunami. Next thing we knew, we had 100 and then 200 and 300, and now I think we're pushing 350 to 400 partners that have joined from all over the world. Thousands of people have come in. We broadcast every day over, I think it's 40-plus live streaming partners to uh, anywhere from 15, 20, 35, 40,000 people uh, a day. Uh, we have registrations from over 130 countries, and it just keeps building and building and building. We're now talking about uh, Humanity Rising Asia that would be broadcast from China. Uh, I mean, you know, it's just an extraordinary thing uh, because people were in isolation, and Humanity Rising gave them a way of not only building community, but expressing themselves to the globe about issues that were very important to them. And we deal with every conceivable issue. 
every single possible <laughs> idea. Uh, I've been exposed to so many ideas I've never even encountered before. Which Same I here. Really deeply Same appreciate. Here. Thank you. Like really, truly. I like. What are your criteria for deciding? It seems like you'll you are very open to an incredible range of alternative and very counter hegemonic perspectives. It, I'm just amazed by the uh, the quality of the people that you've been able to bring together. How do you decide and who, like, are there any in particular speakers that have really stood out in your mind as particularly memorable for you personally? Oh, boy. Well, the opening night we had uh, Jane Goodall, the great primatologist who's a very dear and old friend. I love Jane. Uh, you know, uh, She's a global figure now, I think a saint and a scientist Beautiful simultaneously. Uh, we've had Vandana Shiva, uh, the great uh, Indian activist that stopped Monsanto from going into India. It's almost single-handedly. She's an extraordinary woman uh, and one of the great public uh, intellectuals. Um, we've had um, a Joe Jaworski, uh, you know, who's uh, the founder of the U Process that's probably the most sophisticated transformational process uh, uh, in the contemporary times. Uh, you know, we've, it's been extraordinary. Uh, Rianne Eisler, you know, wrote The Chalice of the Blade. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about humanity rising, because it happens every day, we can track world events. So when George Floyd was um, uh, uh, killed on, uh, May 25th of 2020, we, uh, to our surprise, I mean, it was it's as surprising to me that racism, the question of race, would come out of the pandemic through the iconic killing of George Floyd by a white police officer as the pandemic itself. I, I would thought that the pandemic was about public health and yet what came up to also challenge humanity while we were in isolation was the issue of race. And so we've had this extraordinary conversation uh, from all kinds of vantage points over the last months, almost a year now, about race. We had a woman, uh, Joyce Hope Scott, uh, she's a big professor at, uh, of African American studies at Boston University, uh, talk to us about chattel slavery and how, um, you know, about 20% of the, of the slaves, the people captured in Africa and brought over on those slave ships were actually children. And, and then how at the end of slavery, um, you know, the South wasn't going to let go. And, you know, they began to uh, enslave the Black people and target Black men in particular. And uh, how over the last 150 years, the United States has refined the instrumentality of racial dis discrimination, particularly targeted at black people generally, but black males in particular. And one of the reasons that I didn't know before she talked, she says, why? Because most of those black men that came over for, from Africa were warriors. You could see it in George Floyd, man. He stood like six foot four. He was a warrior. You know, he was taking uh, fentanyl and he, had, he was beaten down. 
but but the black male in America is a strong male, is a warrior, and that's why they could endure slavery. And even after you know hundreds of years of of intense discrimination, including in our incarceration system, the United States put more people in prison than any other country in the world by several orders of magnitude, and most of and them are black men. It. Most yeah, of them are black disgusting. men. It's yeah. disgusting. It's a disgrace. And anyway, so that was just one of our sessions on humanity uh, rising. And then on the other side, we've today was Earth Day. And we had this most extraordinary uh, couple, uh, uh, Basha Alexander and Jim um, uh, uh, Corden. Uh, and he was a PhD in plant pathology at Purdue University, worked for a big uh, agrochemical company, and then all of a sudden had an encounter with a tree that changed his life, quit his job. And now uh, they work all over uh, the United States and other countries, basically healing trees and working with trees and working with humans to, to empower them to um, uh, commune and beyond communing, to communicate with trees. Because, uh, you know, trees are probably the most intimate of any other species with the human being. They are in synchronicity with our breathing. Every in-breath we take is coming from a tree, mostly plants generally, but the trees are, and, and when we exhale carbon di uh, dioxide, that's what they breathe in. And so the relationship with the trees, and he was talking about how the trees feel, how the trees communicate, the trees cry. And in fact, that you can hear them cry. The trees sing together. And then a lot of stories from the audience about uh, how um, you know, they could feel when they had to cut down a tree or they, how the other trees would, would, would groan uh, in agony, fearing that they were going to be cut down next because they have nothing to defend themselves. They're just standing there. Uh, and, um, um, you know, and then we've had uh, sessions on, on the new cosmology, you know, the new physics of Nassim Harriman and and other physicists, David Baum's physics is showing that, that everything in the world is interconnected and we're in one unitary information feedback loop. And that it's like Indra's net, man. Uh, you know, it's all interconnected. It's all learning uh, from each other. Uh, and one of the, just to give you a sense of what that means, you know, we have this prevailing worldview in virtually every physics science department at any university in the world that the universe is completely random, that it's all materialist, it's inert, and basically evolution has happened randomly through genetic selection and so forth and so on. And one of the things that Nassim in one of our Humanity Rising sessions uh, was talking about, he says, if you give a blind man a Rubik cube and tell him that he's got to solve the Rubik cube um, and he's got to make one move a second, 
blind, it would take him longer than the universe has even existed, 13.8 billion years, to solve the Rubik's Cube just through random movements. But if every second you tell them you're getting warmer or colder with every move, he'll solve the cube in three to four minutes. And that's why in 13.8 billion years, you've not only got molecules and organisms, you've got human beings and galaxies because the entire universe is learning through an interconnected web through the Planck's as Nassim Harriman and they're fluctuating in and out of, of the void into manifestation. And with every fluctuation, they're learning from every other piece of information in the universe. So every thought we think, every word we say, every act we do is going into the total information set of the whole cosmos. And it's informing us. And our bodies are living their lives, and we're living our lives in this information feedback loop. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, and then we've had music, and we've had, oh, we've been honoring Stan Groff, the great psychologist Stan Groff. He's turning into his 90th day year. So we've done monthly celebrations of, of Stan, and we just had... You may remember, those of you who don't know Stan Groff, he's really the successor to Freud and Jung. And it was Stan um, that uh, developed uh, the whole notion of the holotropic reality. Because Stan, um, along with uh, others, were the first ones to really experiment with LSD. Hmm. And he did some of the earliest uh, LSD experiments with Albert Hoffman, who actually discovered LSD uh, uh, in the 1940s, and uh, Stan took his first trip in, in uh, 1956 and started to be this incredible scientific reservoir, and then they made it illegal, and then he, he realized that just by doing breath work, the holotropic breath work, you could recreate a psychedelic experience. And then he began to realize that the psychedelic experience correlates almost exactly with the experiences of the great mystics. And that psychedelics are amazingly effective as they're now beginning to rediscover what he was talking about 50 years ago, that psychedelics are amazingly therapeutic uh, in uh, dealing with uh, PTSD, in dealing with anxiety, uh, in dealing with all kinds of stressful, even healing people physically from diseases. Uh, these psychotropic plants. I mean, that's what nature provides for us. We got all kinds of psychotropic plants, and we need to be training our young people uh, into how to use them therapeutically and for spiritual insights. I mean, just think, if instead of making all these drugs illegal, that all the plants, like ayahuasca, like psilocybin, like peyote, like marijuana, we're all opium, that we're all open, and we were training people in, in, in the therapeutic spiritual benefits of how to use them 
with discretion and as initiatory process, just think of how different the world would be. I think it would utterly transform the world. Absolutely. I think it's maybe Absolutely. the one thing that can really fundamentally cure angry white men of yeah. angry white maleness. <laughs> uh, I, I truly believe that there's enormous transformative potential in psychedelic medicines. And I think it's really important that we learn from the wise elders while they're still around. Stan Groff, um, Albert Hoffman invented LSD, and he says, uh, "I'm the Godfather. Or I'm the go I was the father of LSD. Stan Groff is the Godfather because yeah. he was he's so knowledgeable and intelligent and wise and careful and responsible and respectful in terms of spreading uh, the the wisdom that comes from these plants. And so you were at Esalon where he was as well. Yeah. Did he I ever meet Gorbachev or any of these people? Excuse me." Was there ever like a synchronistic uh, experience where you had the Russians and you had Stan Groff at the same time? Because that would have been very interesting. Oh, yeah. Stan is Czech. He speaks Russian. Uh, he's been to Russia uh, numerous times. And we we made sure that when the Russians were sitting in those hot tubs, uh, when possible, Stan Groff was sitting right there with him. Wow. <laughs> That's a good idea. It's a very good idea. It's a very good idea. And uh, it was called hot tub diplomacy, but more broadly, it was called citizen diplomacy, how citizens can go, yeah. go in with these leaders um, that uh, ordinarily wouldn't be able to interact, uh, but through some creative work with, um, uh, through citizen diplomacy, you could break down the mistrust and the alienation. And I think we played a small but important role in the ending of the Cold War. I think, I think that the history will record that uh, the work that Stan was doing, the work that Esalen was doing, the work at, that a lot of other organizations were doing uh, were instrumental in, in creating the thaw in the ice of the Cold War and allowing then our political leaders, again, to do the obvious. Lay it's down incredibly beautiful. I, I'm just amazed by you and your life to be perfectly honest and i just can't help but notice that we share the same little statue shiva the dance of shiva yeah. absolutely man uh he's right back there shiva it's all about shiva it's all about How, the to dance. what extent do you embody shiva and shaivism in your approach to life and as uh and also as an administrator at ubiquity university <laughs> Well, I believe with the Shaivites that it's all one and that it's all a dance. Uh, I agree with Heraclitus that the most fundamental quality of being is movement. And the great movement of the yin and the yang, um, the light and the dark, uh, in perpetual dance within the Tao is Shiva. And uh, understanding both the oneness of it all and the multiplicity of the manifestations of the oneness as they interact together uh, is the way I try to live my life and the way as the convener of Humanity Rising, 
I try to weave whatever strands are coming together within the oneness of understanding that goodness needs to enhance itself dramatically at this moment of, in time because scientists are telling us that we're so out of balance that the dance, when it's not in alignment with the Tao, the dance becomes war. The dance becomes conflict. The dance becomes domination and exploitation and colonization and patriarchy and sexism. And you end up putting your knee on the neck of an African warrior till he's dead, handcuffed with his hands behind his back, with his face in the concrete. That's also the dance of Shiva. But it's the dance of Shiva when the circle enveloping the dance has been broken by greed and ego and fear. So uh, I keep this up there. And this is the, this is the, uh, uh, the Black Madonna of Rock Amadur, considered the most sacred of the Black Madonnas uh, in, uh, in Europe. Uh, I, I don't know what the Black Madonna is. Could you? I've never heard of that before. Or I've been wondering what that is. Yeah. It's beautiful. Uh, the Black Madonna is a very interesting expression of the feminine that is associated with the darkness. Um, and uh, it's that aspect of the feminine that brings karmic retribution, uh, like Durga, when uh, we break the circle of life, but it's also that aspect of the feminine that uses all the contradictions generated by our blindness. And through the suffering that we endure brings redemption. And I think the, the, the greatest description of the Black Madonna was provided by the great Greek tragedian Aeschylus 2,500 years ago in lines from his play that are immortal, maybe the most, the truest lines I know out of literature, drop by drop, pain that cannot forget falls upon the heart until in our despair, against our will, comes wisdom by the awful grace of God. That is the Black Madonna. Wow, that makes a lot of sense too. That's the Black Madonna. She is that redemptive aspect of the feminine that in the darkest hour leads us to redemption. You're fascinating. Okay, I gotta ask about Ubiquity University, which is kind of a, a switch. I'm, it's kind. Of, I feel like sometimes your words grab my soul by the collar and give me a shake. <laughs> it's amazing listening to you speak. Truly, 
Um, but please do tell me about Ubiquity University. It, it's a, an alternative model of university education that's global. You have courses, you have courses, you've got micro courses, macro courses, you have programs, you have uh, BAs, you have MAs, you got PhDs. You seem to have a very unique pricing model. But you have, what's really interesting to me is that you have a very, very unique curricular focus in terms of what you think it's important for people to learn and, and what you're giving people an opportunity to learn. So could you tell us a little bit about the vision of Ubiquity University and, and where it came from and where it's going. Well, after uh, working with Gorbachev and having to close down uh, because of the war on terror, uh, the state of the world forum, I was looking for the next phase. I, I picked up Plato's Republic. I was reading Plato's Republic and he made a comment in which he said, you know, Politics in the end is just a form of coercion. And one gang of thugs takes over for a while, and then another gang of thugs takes over for a while. If you want to engage in true revolution, you have to sculpt the consciousness of the young. That's true revolution, says Plato. As soon as I read those words, I said, yes. So that was the incubation into uh, the creation of what became uh, Ubiquity University. Um, and another uh, seminal uh, moment, which gives a, a sense of what Ubiquity is about, IBM did a study, a CEO leadership study in 2010, and they interviewed 1,700 CEOs and uh, 3,500 students in 60 countries around the world. And their conclusion uh, was that there was not a single academic institution anywhere in the world that was actually preparing young people to navigate through hypercomplexity. We're in a world, man, where little events anywhere can ricochet through the global system and have major repercussions everywhere, like the coronavirus coming out of Wuhan, China, and next thing you know, uh, a month or two later, the entire world is shut down. That's hypercomplexity. And our educational systems aren't, aren't training us for hypercomplexity. And so that hit me between the eyes like a diamond bullet. And I said, whoa, we could create a university that was going to train people for navigating hypercomplexity at a time when the hypercomplexity is blowing us apart and we've got to come together to solve global problems. How do you start? How do you start that enterprise? So we started by going back to the most fundamental basics of the human mystical tradition. One is Plato and his notion that ultimately, at the deepest recess of the human being is truth, beauty, and goodness. How do you design a learning system that is about the truth, your mind? How do you know what you know? How do you then design something that expands your heart in personal development? in soft skills, 
Because true learning is not what you know only, it's who you are. And then goodness, that's beauty. How do you become more beautiful? And then goodness, how do you work with other people to bring goodness into the world? So how do you design a learning system that's about your head, your heart, and your hands? That's at the heart of Ubiquity uh, University. And then we began to play with the chakras and the colors of the rainbow. And this is what we call the Chartrian framework. Um, most learning, Gareth, if you think about it, that we it's random. You know, I, I, every semester at college, I would think I'd look at the syllabus for the next semester and think, hmm, what do I want to learn next? And um, and it was it was kind of random. But what if you take people through a learning system? that starts with the root chakra, goes up through the hara, then the solar plexus, then the heart, then the throat, then the third eye, out the crown. And one of our courses that's being taught all over the world now, in China, in India, in Sri Lanka, in South America, in Europe, is what we call foundation in soft skills and the sustainable development goals. Because we've, we've done a study of all the soft skills because they're saying soft skills are now critical skills. They're at the heart of 21st century literacy. But instead of just teaching them randomly, we distilled them down to the seven essential soft skills, matched them with the seven chakras, and then spread the 17 sustainable development goals through the soft skills. So when the students go through the course, they're going through a process of illumination that is aligned with the deepest awareness human beings have about who we truly are. We're organized by energy centers. And when our energy centers are aligned, we know truth, we cultivate beauty, and we do goodness. And uh, just to give you one quick example, just to see how practical this is, we've reinvented the MBA. You go to Harvard Business School or you go to uh, XYZ University, they're all the same. They have masters in business administration, as if business is something you administer in a factory to get profit. Underworld conditions, that is not only irrelevant, it's dangerous. So we've created a master's in regenerative action because we've taken the position that you can't be sustainable with the planet anymore because the planetary ecology is completely broken. What humans need to do and what business needs to do, because it's doing the most of the damage, is engage in the pathway of regeneration leading to action to save the world. So we've got a master's in regenerative action that, and we're launching it actually with Kate Rayworth on, on June 9th. The donut economics person? Donut economics. Awesome. Uh, uh, Kate Rayworth, in my view, is the most important economist since Adam Smith. Hmm. The wealth of nations, you know, that you let the, uh, 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 People in the freedom of their interactivity generate the market is correct. But Adam Smith said 
that it needs to be contained within a social framework of mutuality. Well, that was forgotten by the capitalists. And that's why the capitalism has turned out to be the most lethally dangerous and destructive economic system in the history of the world, because it's unleashed human greed. Greed is not good. Greed is dangerous. And what Kate Rayworth is saying is that we've got to see that economics, ultimately, economics means about the home. We've got to focus economics not on just making more money, but on human thriving. How do we make people thrive? That's what you do in a household. If you've got children, you got a family, you're trying to figure out a way so that everybody thrives. But the thriving of humanity has to be contained within the larger circle of the donut around ecological systems and constraints. And she's done, a, it's a work of genius. I would I recommend all of you take a look at Kate Rayworth's R-A-W-O-R-R-T-H book on donut economics. Uh, it'll be one of the most important things you'll ever read because it'll reframe how you think about economics and therefore business. And as she says toward the end of the book, properly framed economics becomes regenerative. We're not always depleting the, 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 the environment, sucking resources in, spewing them out, and then making them obsolete, and they end up as plastic in the oceans. But we need to have, you know, a Mobius loop where everything is conserved, everything is reused, everything is in alignment with Mother Earth, uh, because the law of nature uh, cannot be violated indefinitely, and human beings have come to the outer limit of our violation of the great mother. And now the black Madonna is gonna take us out. And what we all need to understand, and because uh, this, is, this is the ultimate point for me, we're not on an inert planet. Planet Earth, as a planet, independent of human beings, is alive, intelligent, intentional, communicative, empathetic, and created all this wonderful life of sentient beings in the center of which has been human beings. Every capacity we have, we got from the earth. We are earth. We are nature. And therefore, uh, our, our mission at this moment in history is to find our reason for being here. Earth created us for a reason, and it was not to destroy ourselves and the ecology. We, we lost track of the plot, back to my PhD thesis. Somehow we lost track of the, of the game plan. And, uh, and it, we're in a dangerous period. So ubiquity and our masters in regenerative action is just one of those, those things that we're offering to, into the world with Kate doing the inaugural uh, Foundations and Donut Economics course starting on, on June uh, 9th uh, for people just to know about and participate is in. Is it still open for registration? It's still open for registration. We even have how scholarships. Much is it? You guys have a much cheaper pricing model yeah. than normal. Uh, roughly how much is that uh, total um, uh, master's in regenerative action? Well, if you take it at the, at the full price, 
Uh, it's about $6,000 for all the units you need over two years. Um, uh, uh, and you compare a MBA at Harvard, it's probably 75,000 a year. So you're gonna pay 100, 150, $200,000 uh, for an MBA at other elite schools. And all you get is information that you could actually access on your cell phone. You go through our foundation and soft skills SDG course, you go through Kate Rayworth's course, you go through the MRA, and it's not about filling your head with knowledge, it's about transforming your soul. It's about empowering your human potential. Because at this critical moment, we all have to have our enhanced human potential operating in order to come together effectively to solve global problems. So uh, in a, a nutshell, that's ubiquity. Uh, it's a wonderful staff, we're global. Uh, you can just go to ubiquityuniversity.org uh, and get on our website and, and, and explore around. And uh, another thing uh, that's worth knowing uh, is that we do everything in modules. You go to most, like you go to Harvard, it's all in semesters or it's in quarters. <clears throat> but at Ubiquity, we have semester courses, you know, 40, 45 hours, 48 hours. We call them macro courses. And then we have what we call micro courses, 10 to 12 hours. Then we have nano courses, which are two to three hours. And then we have nuggets, which are, are, are about an hour. So the students can pick and choose like assembling a Lego set, uh, what they wanna take, when they wanna take it. And it's, they're radically affordable, particularly if you're a lifelong learner, uh, you can take Kate's course, I think for uh, $60. Uh, and uh, you can take it as a lifelong learner. And if you decide you want to do a degree, you can turn it into a degree. I mean, we make it as flexible as possible and uh, fundamental, uh, Gareth, to ubiquity. And I think to the future of learning, because degrees are, are going the way of obsolescence. People now are studying competencies. And what they're studying about, learning about competencies is 70% of your competencies are learned outside the classroom. So at Ubiquity, you can go work on an organic farm in Nicaragua. Uh, you can try to save uh, the whales uh, in the Pacific Ocean. You can write up that project, bring it to Ubiquity and get credit. So we honor the learning that takes place in your life because that's where true learning. And if you wanna get a degree doing that, that's when you come to ubiquity. So we're out of the box. Uh, we're accredited uh, through the Global Accreditation Council uh, based in The Hague um, and uh, so forth. So we're accredited like every other university, but we just decided that the, the world situation was so urgent for, for education as usual. And so we've reinvented it to serve the needs of young people coming at a, of age at a time when we're running out of time. I really do think that there's a lot of people out there that would really be attracted to such a program you know, for a lot of different reasons. And I, I really deeply wish you all the best of luck. I think it's tremendously transformative. Thank everything you, that you do and are is transformative and it's beautiful. And I thank you so much for taking the time to meet me, talk to me, share your stories with me. Uh, you're, I'm deeply, deeply grateful.
Well, it's been a pleasure, Gareth. You're doing great work, and you're just another point of light. We're all little points of light in a big rainbow of colors. That's the bottom line. And let us celebrate that fact on Earth Day and march forward and literally save the world. That's our yeah, mission. I'm with you. Thank you so much. Peace and love to you. Thank you. Peace. That was episode 24 of the World Teacher Podcast. Enormous thanks to Dr. Jim Garrison. He is truly an inspiration, a brilliant thinker and speaker, and a wonderful role model for us all. It was truly an honor. Please do also check out Humanity Rising at humanityrising.solutions. It's best if you can to sign up for the mailing list so that you can get a Zoom link prior to each event. He's asked some really incredible people questions that I've posed in the chat several times. You could be doing that too. Or if the timing doesn't work out, you can find all of the previous event recordings on YouTube or a subsite of Ubiquity University called Ubiverse. And definitely check out Ubiquity University at ubiquityuniversity.org. Peace and love. Thanks for listening.